You can take your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of Luke chapter 10. Our text for today will be verses 1 through 20. Luke chapter 10, verses 1 through 20. Before we dive into our text for today and our message, I want to just give you a bit of a verbal quarterly update for, from our Putting Down Roots initiative. Um, good news, we've reached the halfway point uh, for our Putting Down Roots initiative. Uh, those of you who are members and who are taking part in this three-year plan, this three-year initiative, we have made it halfway through and we are approximately at 55% of the commitments made to putting down roots, that 55% of those commitments have been given thus far. And so we're on track and that's great, very good news. We're thankful for the generosity and the faithfulness of um, our folks who are so diligent to give. And we're thankful for how you support this effort uh, as we seek to put down roots in this community. We are grateful for how the Lord is leading us in this. Um, and we're thankful for each of you. You know, you think about the opportunity that we have, we think, um, just think about the uniqueness of it, and we're grateful uh, to be part of it. And I know sometimes it's easy to forget, especially when we talked much about it almost two years ago, year and a half, two years ago. Uh, but it's good to be reminded from time to time where we are and where we're tracking along. And just to give you a bit of an update uh, where we are in the midst of the details, um, this coming week, Lord willing, Wednesday at the latest, we should have a complete set of plans, construction plans, to send out for bid uh, at some point very soon. And so even Lord willing, we're hopeful that by the end of November sometime we should have uh, bids out and numbers back so that we know what more we're dealing with specifically. Uh, obviously anything can change along these timelines and so what we tell you uh, is always tentative but we're confident, pretty confident, that we should be uh, having some of that knowledge come back by the end of November. And at some point, we don't know when, uh, maybe December, maybe January, we should be having a called members meeting to present information to you, to, to give you uh, a motion to vote on at some point regarding giving us the green light to move forward uh, with, con with contracting with a company and building a building eventually. And so uh, our hope and our prayer is that we could get started sometime in the spring, but again, we're trusting the Lord's timing in that, and we just continue to uh, give ourselves to the work that he's called us to in the meantime. Just know that there is lots of work still going on behind the scenes with our building planning team, with our stewardship ministry team, lots of people crunching numbers, lots of people looking at plans, lots of people doing lots of things uh, behind the scenes, and we're grateful for these brothers and sisters who serve us so well in that way, uh, and I just want to say a word of gratitude for them this morning. Pray for them. Continue to pray for them. Uh, continue to pray for our church as we go through this time uh, together. We're excited. We're looking forward to how the Lord is leading in it and continues to lead in it and all that lays before us in the days ahead. We should have much more to share very soon, but I just wanted to give you a quick update. Those of you who are in the, the Putting Down Roots initiative, you should have received, those of you who give regularly to the church, uh, members of our church, uh, you should have received updates this week in the mail. Hopefully you received those. If you didn't, just let us know in our church office. All that being said, let's turn our attention now to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10. I want to read, beginning in verse 1, and we're going to read down through verse 20. Let's hear the word of the Lord together. Luke writes, After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you and remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But Whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, 
Even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you, and for you, Capernaum. You be exalted to heaven, you shall be brought down to Hades. The one who hears you, hears me, and the one who rejects you, rejects me, and the one who rejects me, rejects him who sent me. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask now that you would give us understanding of it, that we may hear it, and that we may receive it, and that we may live it out for the praise of your name, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, here we are in chapter 10. We finally made it to the double digits of Luke. Chapter 10, making our way through this gospel, and we find yet another account of Jesus sending out disciples on mission. He's sending out disciples. Remember earlier that he had sent out the 12 to be on kind of a short-term mission endeavor in the surrounding region. And here we, here we see that not only the 12, but he sends 72 others out on a very similar mission to go forth and to make the kingdom of God known and how they have power and authority, etc. And we know that when we come to this passage that this account does have unique instruction and applications to the disciples at that time, especially in the very particulars of how they're to go about their mission and their ministry. But I think when we look at it as a whole, we certainly, we certainly gain understanding and application of it for us even so many years later today. Because we know that Christ has called all of his followers, regardless of the time in which we find ourselves, we, regardless in which the context we find ourselves, we've been all called to be disciples who go and make disciples. We're called to be on mission with the Lord. In his work, The Mission of God, Christopher Wright defines mission this way. He says, mission is, fun, or excuse me, fundament, fundamentally our mission if it is biblically informed and validated, means our committed participation as God's people at God's invitation and command in God's own mission within the history of God's world for the redemption of God's creation. We are called to be disciples who are on mission with the Lord to do his work in this world. And as we look at this text today and we get a glimpse into this mission that the 72 had, we gain some insight about some of the characteristics of which ought to inform and direct the mission that any Christian would be engaged in in this world. So we're going to walk through this text and we're going to look at several of those. In fact, there are seven points today. Praise God for that. Seven characteristics of mission that we see in this text, you're not going to see them on the screen because I want you to pay close attention today. I don't want you, I want to see if you can get all seven without help today. All right? Seven characteristics of the mission that we as disciples have been given in this world. We see it here with the 72, and I think the same is true for our mission today. Let's look at them together. Characteristic number one when we think about the mission, we need to understand that it is God's mission. It is God's mission. Mission. If you look at the first few verses of chapter 10, you begin to see that. And you think about the, the mission, the ministry that we as Christians are called to engage and to embrace. Think about the ministry that these 72 have been given. There are many things going on. There are many things that these 72 that have been appointed by the Lord that they are doing. There are many things going on behind the scenes. There are many things going on in them and through them. There are many things that we could say that we do 
on mission with the Lord. But while there are many things happening, one thing that we must not forget, one thing that we must not lose sight of is the fact that God is entirely and completely sovereign over the advance of the gospel and the building of his kingdom. From beginning to end, the mission is God's mission. What we see here in the text affirms that. It confirms this truth. Note, look at verse one. After this, the Lord appointed. The Lord appointed, 72. The Lord sent them where he himself was about to go. So he appointed, he sends. Notice verse two, we're called to pray earnestly for the Lord of the harvest. It's his harvest. In fact, we see that also in verse two, don't we? Pray earnestly for the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. It's his mission. It's his harvest. This is his doing in the world. God is a God who is on mission in this world. It's his. We certainly see that throughout the scriptures, and you certainly see it in the book of Acts, kind of Luke's sequel to his gospel. Luke wrote also the book of Acts, and you see the gospel advancing throughout the book of Acts as the, as the gospel leaves Jerusalem and goes to the, to the nations. You see that it is the Lord that is at work. It is God advancing his cause in the world. Look, Acts 11, verse 18, of the Gentiles, we're told, then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. In Acts chapter 15, verse 14, at the Jerusalem council, James speaks up and he says, Simeon has related how God first, God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. God visited, God took a people for his name. It's his mission. Acts 16, verse 14 of Lydia, we know that the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And so we need to understand from beginning to end in all of the details, when we think about the ministry and the mission of God and his purposes in this world, it's all his. It is all his. He is sovereign over the mission. And brothers and sisters, this is an important fact that we must never forget. We must never lose sight of because when we do, we can grow weary we can grow discouraged, we can grow way, way too centered upon our capabilities and what we can accomplish in this world. But friends, it's this truth alone that will keep our hand to the plow when things get hard, when we face opposition and difficulty in the world, which we will. God's mission is just that, it's his mission. And because it's his mission, it cannot ultimately fail. William Carey, the father of modern missions, he left his home in England in 1793 for India. And he wrote about the time that he left, not, not too long after, he says, when I left England, when I left England, my hope of India's conversion was very strong. But amongst so many obstacles, it would die unless upheld by God. Though the superstitions of the heathen were a thousand times stronger than they are, and the example of the Europeans a thousand times worse. Though I were deserted by all and persecuted by all, yet my faith fixed on the sure word would rise above all obstructions and overcome every trial. God's cause will triumph. This is William Carey, Father of Modern Mission, saying, despite all that I'm enduring, despite all the rejection and all the difficulty of leaving my homeland to go to another and to be rejected and to see all the depravity on display in the world, my confidence is in the word and my confidence is in the fact that God's cause will triumph because it's his cause. God doesn't fail. We should take comfort in that. Friends, there are several things about the mission of God that we don't know. There's several things that we don't know. We, we don't know when God's purposes will finally and fully be accomplished in this world. We don't know when that day will come. We don't know who will come to Christ and when or how. We don't know when the light will go on in their heart and mind and soul and understand the beauty of the gospel. We don't, we don't know that. We don't know many things, but the one thing that we do know is that God is sovereign over the mission and his cause in this world will triumph. It's his mission. 
Friends, let that fact give us the confidence to serve, to go, to proclaim, to persevere in this mission. And we see that just at the very beginning here in Luke chapter 10. It's God's mission, point number one. Number two, it's a shared mission. Number one is it's God's mission. Number two, it's a shared mission. And you see that in verses three down through verse 12. We've seen this earlier in the example of Jesus sending out the 12. But now he sends out 72 disciples on another mission. On another mission. He's sending out 72. Now it shouldn't be surprising to us that Jesus is sending out others because we've seen him do it before. See that back in verse, or earlier in, in, in chapters 8 and 9, and you see how, how the Lord used them. But even along the way, back in chapter 9, towards the end, as Jesus continues to make his way to Jerusalem, he's still recruiting disciples. He's still calling people to follow him. He's still, he's still bringing about others. And as Jesus now in chapter 10, as he sends out the 72, there are several things about this that, that I think are important to highlight. First of all, he sends out 72. There's a lot of discussion about this number. Does this, is this number symbolic of something? Maybe. Some refer back to the 72 nations listed in Genesis chapter 10 and say this is a number prefiguring the universal mission of God to take the truth to all nations. Maybe that's the case. We know that as others have pointed out, that 72 fits well within the number 12. You, you math people can figure that out, and multiples of that, and all of that that we find throughout Scripture. And there's a lot that have said these are very symbolic numbers, meaning very specific things. But I wouldn't want us to get bogged down into those weeds necessarily, and, unless it's clearly stated. The main point here that we need to understand is that ministry was not and is not reserved for just a few people. The ministry that Jesus was taking on and, and, and engaging in himself was not just for him. It wasn't just for the 12. It was for others. He's calling others. And we know that it wasn't even just for the 72. Why? Because he says that they were to pray for more laborers to come and go to the harvest. We know that he sends these out two by two. Practically speaking, this would serve as mutual encouragement and support for these early disciples Theologically speaking, it served a point as well. Two witnesses were told, we know that in this day and time, we're required in order to bring condemnation, something we'll soon see in our text. But again, one of the things that we need to take away from this text is that this ministry was a shared ministry. They are sent out two by two. As we know that the mission of God has continued right on from this time until our day. Right on from the days of the disciples to our day. And it is still true today that we are all called in some capacity to share in God's mission in one way or another. We all do not have the same roles and responsibilities. We all do not have the same callings, specific callings, whether full-time or vocational or non-vocational or full-time minister or this or that. And, and yet we know, based upon other passages of Scripture, that we all have been given gifts to serve the good of the body and the advance of the gospel. When you look at this text, we can look at it and say, well, how specific should we get in replicating what we see here? Does that mean we should just send out teams of 72 or that anything that we do, we always only need to send two people? Well, certainly, that's not what it's getting at. Because we see other examples in the Bible where different groups and different numbers of people go on mission. Certainly, in the book of Acts, you see different, different numbers of different people going forth. This isn't necessarily to say that ministry should always be done in pairs. But it does show us and demonstrate the value of partnering together and sharing ministry together. One of the things that we need to understand about the advance of the gospel is that ministry should not be undertaken by the Lone Ranger types. I'm not saying that one individual can't do good in the world. I'm not saying that, but I'm just saying it should raise an alarm bell in our minds when people go out on their own, so to speak. They're just out there on their own, kind of 
serving the Lord? Well, we need to understand that there is much wisdom and benefit in serving together with others in ministry, and you certainly see that exemplified here. It's one of the gifts and blessings that we experience of being part of a local church together, that we are together going forth for the sake and the advance of the gospel in this world and so that we can encourage each other and spur each other on to that end. It's a shared ministry. Number three, it's a dependent mission. It's God's mission. It's a shared mission. It's number three, a dependent mission. Friends, mission, ministry, for the gospel's sake, must be built in dependence upon the Lord. In fact, the place where mission begins must be upon our knees. And here Jesus is urging prayer for more laborers to go off into the harvest. There were too few laborers. More was needed. He, he knew that, and he was calling more to go and encouraging his disciples to pray that others would answer that call. Friends, it's a reminder to us that if we want to be actively engaged in the cause of the gospel in this world, that we must be actively engaged in prayer. If you want to take part in seeing the gospel go forth in our community, to see people, men and women and children, saved in this community and born again in this community and raised up as disciples in this community, you must be a praying people. If you want to see the cause of the gospel advance throughout our state, throughout this nation, and to the ends of the earth, we must be a praying people. Remember, this is not our mission, and therefore we need the Lord's help. We need his power. We need him to act. The truth, though, is that we all can acknowledge that we often don't prioritize prayer for the mission and we won't until we understand the urgency and the need of it. Brothers and sisters, one of our regular prayers as God's people ought to be for more laborers. One of our constant prayers ought to be that God would be raising up others to go wherever they need to go in this world for the sake of the gospel. More men and women to be mobilized for strategic gospel ministry. I just ask you, when is the last time you prayed for more laborers for the advance of the gospel? How often does God's harvest and God's mission find itself in your praying? How often are you begging the Lord for more gospel workers? Friends, the work of the gospel, whether in our neighborhood or among the nations, ought to be a frequent request, amongst the many other things for which we pray. We ought to be praying to that end as a dependent people upon the Lord, knowing that we are at his mercy. We need him to work. We need him to move. Why do you think Jesus is saying pray earnestly for more laborers, for the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest? You may think, well, well he, it's his mission. Shouldn't he just raise them up? Well, if you want to take up the, that up with the Lord, feel free. But Jesus instructs us that one of the means by which he uses to raise up workers for the gospel's sake is through your prayers. God has ordained the end in mind that people will be saved from every tribe, tongue, nation, and language, but he's also ordained the means to the end. He's calling us to pray, and one of the things that pleases the Lord is when his people pray, and he is delighted in answering the prayers of his people to send his people to advance his cause in this world. Are you praying for that? Are you praying for God to raise up more people? to serve his cause in this world? Is that, is that found in your praying? And brothers and sisters, one of the things that we need to be willing to hear, number one, you need to be willing to pray for that, and number two, you need to be willing to even be an answer to that very same prayer. 
You say, no problem, I can pray. Okay, maybe pastor, I haven't been praying for that as I ought. I'm gonna pray more faithfully now. I'm gonna pray for more laborers. God, send more laborers out. You're not about to consider maybe he has you in mind as being one of those laborers. Friends, let's pray, but let's also be willing to be an answer to that prayer. Let's be willing to pray, but let's be willing to be part of the answer. It's a dependent mission. Let's be a praying people to that end. Number four, it's God's mission, it's a shared mission, it's a dependent mission. Number four, it's a risky mission. Verse three, go your way, behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. He tells the 72 to go, and as they do, he says no, that it's not going to be easy. God's mission can be dangerous and risky. Sometimes we, we, we trivialize and make light of the mission we've been called to engage. And I think sometimes we, 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 we need to be reminded that this is a mission that's not without risk. I think too many Christians sometimes want to, want to be part of the mission, but they want to be comfortable in that mission. And anything that kind of presses in on them or pushes them a bit, they, they kind of pull back and say, that's, that's too much of a cost for me. We know that as Jesus makes this, gives them this warning, I'm, I'm, I'm sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. We know that wolves were known to devour sheep. They were predators. Sheep were often vulnerable. And Jesus is saying this because he understood exactly what he would soon be facing, and he also understood what his disciples would soon be facing. He knows he's sending them out into enemy territory. He's sending them out to be vulnerable, perhaps devoured. We know, at least due to tradition tells us, that most, if not all, the 12 apostles would be martyred, would be killed, devoured, eventually. It's a risky mission. If you're not willing to count that cost and to take that risk, you're likely not willing to follow Jesus as he's on his terms, as he's called us to. Next week is the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church. We acknowledge that our brothers and sisters throughout the world often suffer much for simply being a Christian. According to Open Doors, a non-denominational organization supporting persecuted Christians worldwide, persecution is certainly not on the decline. Just in this past year alone, over 260 million Christians live in places where they experience high levels of persecution. Almost 80% of the numbers of people that live in the United States that number of Christians, 260 million Christians living in the world where they experience high levels of persecution. Over 2,900 Christians in this past year alone have been killed for their faith. In this past year alone, some 9,488 churches and other Christian buildings have been attacked or burned. And at least some 3,700 Christians detained with no trial, arrested, and sentenced, and imprisoned with no trial. Now, many, if not most of these, are those who have not been sent out, per se. They're simply living in their own community where they've been born and raised. And they come to faith and they experience persecution. And as they seek to live out the truth of the gospel in their own towns and cities and villages and nations, as they seek to be Christ ambassadors where they live, as they are innocent sent out, they are enduring these kinds of hostilities against them. Friends, it's just a reminder to us that whether you're enduring opposition and hostility simply because of where you live or maybe because of where you're sent, we are going to experience 
hardship and opposition in this world. In John chapter 15, verse 20, Jesus says, A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Friends, when you come to faith in Christ, when you come to faith in Christ, you are also accepting, a, you're willingly accepting a risk. You're accepting the responsibility and the weight that, that is now placed upon you to be Christ in this world, to be an ambassador of Christ in this world, and with that will come difficulty. There will be difficulty in your family relationships. There will be friction in families because of your faith, because of Jesus. Some of you experience that regularly. You know what that friction feels like. You know what that difficulty feels like. You know and understand that that tension is there because of your faith. Those of you who are students, whether middle school, high school, college, you understand that because of your faith, there will be certain hostilities thrown against you. You need to understand that when you go to school, go off to college, or maybe some of you are watching from college even now through our live stream, that as a Christian, you're going to be opposed, radically so, because of your faith, because of your worldview. You must be willing to take that risk to endure those attacks. On and on we can go. There are so many issues in the world where living for Christ in this, in this day and time, in this world in which we live is risky business. Go your way, behold, I'm sending you out as lambs amidst of wolves. Being on mission for the sake of the gospel is not light work. It is not. Number four, it is a clear mission. It is a clear mission. In verses 4 through 12, Jesus gives specifics regarding the particular approach these groups of two, these 72, were to take. They were to travel light. He caused them to, to go into towns and go into houses, and if they were welcome, that they were to remain eating and drinking what was provided for them, and et cetera. And if they were not received, they were going to the streets and preach. We'll talk more about that in a minute. Ultimately, you see in these verses that they were, they were called to go forth, to travel light, and to depend upon Christ, to depend upon the Lord to meet their basic needs. The go he has here specifically for the 72 is also a go for every believer in a sense. And we, while they had a very specific mission before them, a very specific calling in this day and time in this region of the world, we also see how that carries on for other believers throughout the rest of the Gospels, throughout the book of Acts, throughout the New Testament, and until today. Friends, we're reminded here that you really can't be a faithful disciple, a disciple and not be a goer. Whether that's across the nations or across the street or across the hall to speak with your child, we're all called to be those who speak the truth of the gospel in this world. We're called to embrace the responsibility to advance the truth. And I think what you find in verses 4 through 12 is unique instructions in this unique, in this unique opportunity that these disciples had. He's giving them very specific things to do and not do. I think that's certainly applicable to them. But when we sit back and we see what they've ultimately been called to, there are things that apply to us as well. They were sent with a clear mission. And while the particulars may look different for us than it did them in this day and time, the, the ultimate goal is the same, isn't it? Twice in these verses, he tells them that they are to say, the kingdom of God has come near to you. Remember one of the first things that Jesus preached when he began his earthly ministry, one of the first things that come out of his mouth is repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is the announcement that they are called to go forth and give. It was the central message because Jesus ushered in a new era of God's redemptive purposes. 
Quite likely they had much more to say, and this being really more of a summary statement, you see it there in verse 9, again in verse 11. It says, whenever you enter a town, they receive you, eat what is set before you, heal the sick in it, and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But even if they don't receive you, verse 11, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you, they were to say, nevertheless know this, that the kingdom of God has come near to you. They were there to be ambassadors for the kingdom, representatives of the king to announce his arrival, that the kingdom had been inaugurated, the king was present. And for a well-taught Jew, that message would have been the, the announcement that they have been long awaiting. The Messiah had arrived, the hope of the nations was about to appear. It was a clear calling. Friends, today we have a very same message, but we, in a different way today, our message is more complete. We know the message in full. Not only has the Messiah come, but he lived, he died, he was raised on the third day. He ascended into heaven and he's promised to come again. This is the message that we proclaim to the world Our message is that the kingdom of God has come near, that the king has come and he lived and he died and he was raised and he's coming again for sinners. Friend, that is good news for you. If you're here today or if you're watching today and you're not a Christian, this is the news that that we want to tell you. That God in his mercy and in his grace has sent his son into the world to be the savior of sinners. And it's through his life, death, and resurrection alone, his finished work that he accomplished here in this world that he did that is your hope, that he lived a life you should have lived, he died the death we all deserve to die, so that all who would trust in him and turn from their sins and put their faith in him would be forgiven once and for all and accepted into the kingdom of God. Friend, that is is news for you. If you would receive it, we would urge you to. To trust in Christ. The king has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Friends, this message is the message that must be central. There are so many other messages that we have. There are so many other things, important things, that we need to be saying in this world, but this is the ultimate thing. We need to be diligent to share the good news of what the king has come to accomplish. It's a clear mission. Don't get distracted by other things. This is what you and I have been called to do. This is the thing that should energize you every single day of every moment that you live. This is the good news that we are privileged to share with the world. And friends, is this the mission that you're living out? Is this the mission you're living out? Is this what excites you every day? Sometimes I wonder. I wonder if we're not more excited about game four of the World Series, how it ended last night. I wonder if we're not more excited about the college football, that the Big Ten finally gets to play games. I wonder if we're more excited and more zealous for our politics than we are King Jesus. You look out there in social media world and you hear conversations, you have to wonder if we're more excited and animated about earthly things than we are eternal things. We have a clear mission. And it's it's a mission that we've been called to announce to the world that the kingdom of God has come near. It is the hope of the nations. This is the message that must be central. It's a clear mission, but number four, uh, number whatever we're on, six. It's a sobering mission. I want you to notice, by the way, that there's little said about the method. Again, one of the things we need to understand about Scripture is the difference between a passage being prescriptive and descriptive. I think you have a lot of descriptive stuff going on here in this text. We're not necessarily called to send out two by two. We can. We're not necessarily called to enter homes like this. We can. I think there are principles we learn from this, but the ultimate thing that we take away from this is not necessarily method, but message. It's the message of the kingdom that we must be about, which leads me to this next point. It's a sobering mission. Even looking at verses 10 through 12, you see that they were, Jesus is preparing them for rejection. 
He's telling them, you're going to go and you're going to share this good news and some people, many people, are not going to have it. And when that happens, do this. Stay on task. Stay on message. Remind them yet again that the kingdom of God has drawn near. And then you come to verses 13 through 16. And you see these woes. What, you th- what I think you see here is Jesus in his instruction to the disciples and in these pronouncement of woes is you see a clear warning that the message we proclaim is sobering. It is good news. It is glorious news. It is good news for the world that there is in fact hope for sinners of which we all are. But there's a clear warning. There's a clear warning. The message we proclaim makes clear that eternal death and eternal life are at stake. Advancing the mission, proclaiming the gospel is not something we throw out simply to people as if it's one option among others. Like, hey, believe in Jesus. He's the best option. There's a lot of other things you could believe in this world, but Jesus is kind of the best thing you can believe. That's not what we're called to do. We're not called to present Jesus as if he's one item on a buffet of many things in this world that you can believe and embrace when it comes to who God is and how salvation comes. He is the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. There's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus is an exclusive message because he is the only way to the Father. And when we proclaim that, when people remain in their opposition to him, they need to understand, and part of the message we need to communicate is that there will be judgment. If you remain in your sin, If you remain in your opposition to God and who he is and you insist upon your own way or you want to try to somehow depend upon your own good works to make yourself right with God, judgment is coming. The message we proclaim is good news, but it's news with a warning. Part of the reason it's good news is because there's bad news. The bad news is that we are all sinners. All of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us are deserving of God's righteous judgment upon us for our sin and our rejection of him and our rebellion against him. And God has every right to condemn us because of that. And yet, he, in his grace and kindness, sends his son into the world to be the savior of sinners. This message is a sobering message. Friends, we are called to speak of the narrow way. And those who don't receive our message will remain under God's rightful judgment. Notice the woes pronounced in these verses. The people of these towns in particular did not receive the message. Chorazin, Bethsaida. Notice he says, woe to you, woe to you. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, remember those those coastal towns there, they would have repented long ago sitting in sackcloth and ashes. You see what Jesus is saying? Had the message preached to you, listen, Chorazin and Bethsaida were, were likely towns in the region of Galilee. Where did Jesus spend the majority of his time in ministry before he sets his face towards Jerusalem? In this region. He spent much and most of his ministry in this part of the world where these communities would have been. So it would have been these communities that were privileged. They had the privilege of seeing the miracles of Jesus before their very eyes, hearing the teachings of Jesus regularly, had all of this this wonderful privilege to, to receive all of this good news and see it in action, and they rejected it. And Jesus is saying, had these pagan cities, Tyre and Sidon, had these pagans received the good news that you have received and heard, they would have received it gladly. But not you. Not you. So he pronounces woes and he said, it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. You will be brought down to Hades. Brothers and sisters, let that also be a warning, just side note. We live in a place, because of God's grace to us, where the truth of the gospel is regularly and openly heard. 
And it may be that you're here and you sit regularly under the preaching of the gospel. And maybe you regularly hear the, the good news of Jesus Christ and you've yet to bow the knee to Jesus. Let this be a warning. Let this be a warning. I think that what we see here is those who have more and more access to the truth of who Jesus is, that the judgment will be even more unbearable for them than for those who may not have that same access. Friend, trust in Christ. Don't be caught up in a woe. Don't be one who incurs judgment upon yourself. Notice in verse 16, he says, the one who hears you, hears me. As we preach the gospel, as we proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God, as we warn people of the judgment to come, what we're doing is we're representing Jesus. And he says, the one who hears you, hears me. The one who rejects you, rejects me. And the one who rejects me, rejects him who sent me. And so when we share the good news, if it's received, they're not receiving us, they're receiving Christ. If it's rejected, they're not rejecting you or me, they're rejecting Jesus. Let that be a warning. Let that be part of our message. I think sometimes Christians and churches today leave that out. They want to preach the good stuff, right? They want to preach the love of God, the mercy of God, the grace of God, but they don't want anything to do with the judgment and the justice and the righteous wrath of God against sin. Friends, again, the message we proclaim is not just an option upon the buffet of religious opinion. It is the revelation of God to man that we are under judgment and our only hope is found in Christ. Our message must be clear. It must be centered upon the hope of the kingdom brought about by Jesus. But it must come with that warning that those who continue to persist in their sin and rebellion against God will incur his wrath. Number seven, last but not least, it is a joyful mission. Just for review, it's God's mission. It's a shared mission. It's a dependent mission. It's risky. It's a clear mission, it's a sobering mission, but it is a joyful mission. Notice in verse 17, when the 72 return, they return how? With joy. With joy. What are they rejoicing over? What are they having joy in? They were rejoicing over their success. They're like, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. They're like shocked. Remember that guy they saw casting out demons and they couldn't? Some of them couldn't, the 12 disciples. It's as if now the 72 are like, hey, we can do this again. Look what we did. We, we actually cast out demons. We saw how they're subject to us in your name. Jesus responds by highlighting Satan's fall from heaven and that he had given them power, basically, to accomplish such a task. Notice he says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all over, over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. Of course you did this. I gave you the power to do so. Nevertheless, oh, brothers and sisters, anytime you see nevertheless in the Bible, pay attention. Nevertheless, look what Jesus says. Do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Jesus is helping ground their joy. He's, 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 not, he's not trying to, to throw water on their flames. He's trying to ignite their flames with the proper ignition, with the proper fuel. It's good that you have joy, he says. But if you're going to rejoice, don't rejoice in the fact that you can exercise, that you can cast out demons. I mean, think about that. If, if you and I had that ability, I mean, that, we, we'd be flexing, wouldn't we? we? We'd be pretty stoked if we thought we could do that. I mean, we would be posting it on Facebook and all of that. I mean, we'd be telling all kinds of people, look what we did. We, 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 we stared a demon down and, and he left. I mean, that's a big deal. Certainly, commendable. Because there's great joy in taking part in God's mission, no question. And we must rejoice. We should rejoice when we see the Lord at work in us and through us. We should rejoice when we see evil defeated. We should rejoice when we see fruit from our labor, of course. 
But brothers and sisters, what Jesus is reminding each and every one of us, the greater joy, the greater joy comes by knowing the truth that we are the very recipients of the hope we proclaim. We need to beware of loving God more for what he does through us than what he does for us. We need to beware of loving God more for what he does through us than what he does for us. Sometimes we can love the ministry more than we do Jesus. Sometimes we can find more joy in doing things for the Lord than in what we've received from the Lord. And he's reminding us here that there is joy in this mission. You should delight in seeing God do wonderful things in and through you, but your greater joy is to know that God has reached down in grace and has plucked you from the judgment to come and saved you by his grace and redeemed you when you deserved it not. The greater miracle is not that the demon fled the disciples. The greater miracle is that the disciples were even saved. The greater miracle is that God had saved unrighteous sinners. And his word to his disciples is a word to us. Don't forget what grace you've been given. Don't forget where your joy should be rooted. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Do not lose sight of the fact that your joy should be rooted not in the things that you do, but in the things Christ has done to secure you as his own. Rejoice in that. Yes, delight in the good things you see and that you get to take part in. He's not saying be miserable when you see good things happen. He's not saying that. He's just saying make sure that your joy is not ultimately rooted in successes or even seeming failures in ministry. Because when, what, what would have happened had they returned and, and they were all beat up by the demons? See, you, need a, you need a joy that will outlast anything in this world, and that is found only in the fact that we've been recipients of grace. It's a joyful mission. Friends, we all have a part in this mission. These 72 had a particular opportunity before them and a unique calling, and we have an opportunity before us, and we have all unique callings. The question is, are we going with confidence? Are we going with confidence? Are we going together? Are we going prayerful? Are we willing to take risk? Are we going with the kingdom agenda or some other thing? Is our message clear, and is our joy properly grounded in Jesus? Because this is what we're called to do. I'm thankful that we get to do it together. And I'm thankful that the Lord continues to correct us and to navigate us as we live out lives on mission with him. Let's continue to be faithful stewards of what he's given us to do here in our own community and even to the ends of the earth. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this reminder this morning. How great your mission truly is, how great your calling upon our lives truly is, Lord, no matter where we find ourselves today as your people, whether we're single, whether we're married, whether we have kids, whether we don't, whether we're young, whether we're old. Father, we all as your people have been called to be on mission with you in some fashion or another, Lord. You've given us opportunity even today, even this week that's before us to, to be your ambassadors on mission with you. Lord, would you help us as we go forth to remember these truths this morning so that we can confidently and joyfully go forth with the good news of Jesus Christ to a world that desperately needs to hear it. God, would you keep our hand to the plow? Would you keep us looking forward would you keep us rooted in truth? We pray this all in Jesus' name and for his sake.